Ephesians 5, uh, 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of God. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us to hear his word and to obey it. Let's pray. Father, we've just heard that Christian marriage is a great mystery And Lord, uh, for those of us who are married, we know that marriage is a mystery. And yet, Lord, you want us as Christians to reflect the gospel in our lives and our marriages. And Father, we don't find that easy because we are sinners from birth and by nature. And so, Lord, we pray again that you may remind us of these great truths. Lord, they are well known to many of us. But, Lord, we need to be reminded of what, you, what design you've given for marriage. And so, Lord, will you help us by your Spirit, not only today as we study your Word, but day by day, will you give of your Spirit, Lord, that we may obey your Word more and more. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, as I've just uh, said, today is our part three in a three-part sermon on marriage. And you'll remember the definition that I've been using for marriage from the scriptures, that it's one man, one woman for one life to the exclusion of all others. You'll remember in our first uh, talk, uh, we saw that God, God made us male and female. God is the author of uh, of marriage. He's the creator of marriage. We also saw that not only has God created marriage and made marriage, but that in Genesis 3, sin entered our world and brokenness entered our world, and that distorted every area of life, including marriage, which is why building a good marriage is hard work, and building a good family is hard work, which is why the key to a successful marriage is Christ where both husband and wife submit ultimately to Christ. 
So here's the logic. The fundamental problem in your marriage is not that your partner doesn't understand you. It's not that you married the wrong partner. I think just about everyone who's married at some point thinks I've married the wrong person. That is not the problem, my dear friends. The fundamental problem in your marriage is sin. Your sin and your spouse's sin. You are born sinners. We are sinners from birth, by nature. In actual fact, we are professional sinners. We're not amateur sinners. We are professionals. And that is the fundamental problem, which means the only antidote, the only vaccine is Christ, submitting to Christ as king, as a couple, individually, recognizing Christ's grace. We need his grace, his forgiveness every day, living under Christ's authority, That is the key. The key is Christ, because the problem is sin. In the second talk, we looked at two critical areas. Two weeks back, we looked at companionship, and then we looked at leaving your parents and establishing a new social unit. Today, I want to look at two further areas uh, in marriage. I want to have a look at sex in marriage, and then secondly, roles in marriage. But before I do that, let me go down two side roads. The first side road is that after your relationship with God, if you are married, the next most important relationship is your marriage, which is why we all need to work at our marriages. And one of the ways in which we work at our marriage is to keep learning. It's kind of obvious. In every area of life, we keep learning. We keep studying your work, your profession, your career, your sport, your hobbies. Well, so it should be in marriage. I think it would be great if every marriage represented here this morning, here in the auditorium online, if you could perhaps read one book per year together on marriage. Perhaps start this Easter. We need to keep learning. We need to keep growing. I've already mentioned three great authors, Tim and Kathy Keller, their book, the Meaning of Marriage, Christopher Ash, his book called Marriage, uh, Paul Tripp, his book called What Did You Expect? Um, let me mention two others, which are very, very practical books, and they really just help us to understand each other because we're different. We're very different. And so it helps us. We need wisdom. We need practical wisdom in how to love your spouse. Let me mention two of them. One is the classic called The Five Love Languages. Perhaps you need to reread that by Gary Chapman. Uh, The five five love languages. We all have different love languages. Quite often, spouses don't know what their spouse's love language is. Let me remind you the five. Words of affirmation, quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. So I think it would be a great idea to to get one of these books, order it on Kindle, read it together over Easter, and talk about your particular love language so that your spouse can understand you and you can understand your spouse. I think I'm into all five, but then I'm high maintenance. (laughs) Another book with very practical wisdom is called His Needs and Her Needs by Willard Harley. And in this book, uh, he goes through the five top needs of a husband, the five top needs of a wife. It's not foolproof. Not every, every marriage is the same. But I think it can be very helpful. What are the top needs of your spouse? Let me just mention two or three of them. 
her top needs. Number one, affection. Number two, intimate conversation. Number three, honesty, openness. It's no surprise, is it? Those are her top needs. His top needs, sexual fulfillment, no surprise either. Admiration, did you know that? Admiration, companionship. So we learn, we study, we work at every other area in life. Surely it should be no different when we come to our marriages. We keep learning, we keep growing so that we can grow in our love for each other and our understanding of each other. Side road number two. Let me go back to what I said about soulmates last time. Remember, our culture teaches us this grand illusion. The illusion is this, that somewhere out there is your perfect soulmate, your perfect partner, someone with whom you will be perfectly compatible. It's the lie that you only have to find that one person who will heal all your hurts, satisfy all your desires, satisfy all your longings. There is such a person, and he's called God. And hopefully you are part of his bride. But no, there's no such soulmate on planet Earth. Why? Because we are all seriously flawed. We are all serious professional sinners. However, let me say this. Your spouse can become your soulmate. May take five years, ten years, twenty years. But your but your spouse can become your soulmate. As you work at your marriage, as you as you build up a bank of forgiveness and trust, of failure and fun, a bank of love and grace. And my dear friends, your marriage won't survive without forgiveness and without grace. You will find that over time you become soulmates. Let me read to you from my great, great hero, Augustine, who was an African church father. And uh, he came from Algeria, which is why we support Algeria in the World Cup, uh, because of Augustine. Listen to what, what Augustine said to his to his children. He wrote to his children. And uh, he and his wife were probably um, getting on. Their children were probably in their teen years or their 20s. He says this, I quote, Love is a temporary madness. It erupts like an earthquake and then subsides. And when it subsides, you have to make a decision. You have to work out whether your roots have become so entwined together that it is inconceivable that you should ever part, because this is what love is. Love is not breathlessness. It is not excitement. It is not the promulgation of promises of eternal passion. That is just being in love, which any of us can convince ourselves we are. Love itself is what is left over when being in love has burned away. And this is both an art and a fortunate accident. Your mother and I had it. We had roots that grew towards each other underground. And when all the pretty blossoms had fallen from our branches, we found that we were one tree and not two. I mean, isn't that wonderful? Now you know why I love Augustine. 
That's why we persevere. You can become soulmates and then discover that instead of being two trees, you actually one. All right, two principles. Principle number one, sex in marriage. Genesis chapter 2. Back to Genesis. We're going to look at a couple of passages this morning. We've got to cover quite a bit of territory. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Let me read that to you. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, one flesh here refers to emotional unity, spiritual unity, but first and foremost, it does refer to physical unity, sexual unity. So it is God who has made us two genders, male and female, two genders, not one, not three, but two. It's God who created sex for marriage, to to be fully enjoyed in marriage. Now, if you look into church history, sadly, there, there were times in church history uh, when, when the church has, has taught a very negative view of sex. And in actual fact, what happened was that they divorced sexuality from spirituality, which is not what the Bible teaches. So in church history, there were times when the church fathers taught that all sexual intercourse, except for the purpose of procreation, was a sin. One church father taught that the Holy Spirit left the bedroom whenever a couple engaged in sex, sexual intercourse. Imagine. Ives of Chartres, born 1040, he counseled the devout to abstain from sexual intercourse on Thursdays in remembrance of the return of Christ, on Fridays in remembrance of the death of Christ, on Saturdays in remembrance of the Virgin Mary, on Sundays in remembrance of the resurrection of Christ, and on Mondays in, in remembrance of the departed souls. You better not have a work or church meeting on a Tuesday or Wednesday night. Of course, they were dead wrong. It is God who created us male and female. And after God created sex and God made us sexual beings, God said it is good, it is very good. He was saying sex is very good. Did you know that one of the books of the Bible, there are 67 books in the Bible, one of the books of the Bible is devoted to the love and the sexual enjoyment of a husband and wife. Let me turn, turn with me to, to Song of Solomon or sometimes called Song of Songs. Uh, Turn to me, Song of Solomon. It's right in the middle of the Bible. You have the poetic books. You have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then Song of Songs. Turn to it. Let me read to you this wonderful poetry. This is poetic language where the author, there's a maiden, there's a man, and they speak in pictures, in poetry, in metaphors to convey the sexual attraction that they have for one another. So let me read to you, first of all, the maiden, the lady, chapter 2, verse 3. And remember, this is poetry, and it's beautiful poetry. Chapter 2, verse 3. She says, As an apple tree among, among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. 
His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you, that you not stir up or, 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 or awaken love until it pleases. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom, they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Isn't that beautiful? Now, of course, you'll notice there, verse 8, that some of us are not able to bound over hills or leap over mountains. But what a wonderful picture, rejoicing, celebrating God's great gift of sex. Chapter 7, verse 1 to 9. Yeah, you have the man speaking. Chapter 7, from verse 1. He says of his of his bride. He says, how beautiful are your feet in sandals. That's a good one. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel, navel is a rounded bowl with, that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of bath Rabbim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. <coughs> That is an interesting one. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breast be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine." Isn't that beautiful poetry? God celebrating, delighting in his great gift to us. I do wonder a little bit, perhaps part of the culture, verse 2, your belly is like a heap of wheat. So obviously that is not a problem. That is not a problem. Remember that sex in marriage glorifies God because it strengthens the unity between a husband and a wife. About 20, 20 years ago, our presiding bishop was Joe Bell. And uh, he once told me, he said to me, before Christine, his wife, before we go to bed at night, I normally hold her hand and say a short prayer. And he said the one night, I was so tired, I was so, ex- so exhausted that, 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 that I took her hand and I said, for what we are about to receive, may the Lord make us truly thankful. LAUGHTER uh, Now, the Bible does see sex as a gift for marriage. And the reason for that is that marriage is a safe, protected environment that protects the dignity of each person. And the Bible is saying sex is precious. It is a precious gift from God. You can't just play with it. You can't just throw it around. You've got to protect it. It is fragile. 
You can break it. You can break a person. And that is why marriage is the safest and best place to protect and to enjoy this gift that God has given you. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. Paul writes, he's talking about marriage. Verse 5, do not deprive one another. So he's talking about sex. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying sex in marriage should be regular. It is critical to keep the sexual fire alight. So we all know the expression, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, while Paul says regular sex keeps the devil away. That's part of marriage. And he says it's God's gift to you. Have a look at verse 3 and 4. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. We have a duty towards one another. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So verse 4 there does not mean... When Paul says that a husband has authority over his wife's body, it does not mean that a husband can abuse his wife sexually. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean he can force her to do what she doesn't want to do. You can't use this verse to justify force or aggression or submission. No. Remember what Gugu read to us, that a husband must love his wife. He must cherish his wife as Christ loved the church. He must die for her. He must serve her. But I think it does mean that a wife ought to understand her husband's needs. And normally, normally, not always, but normally a, a, a husband's, husband's sexual desires may be stronger, and she may need to understand that. And she needs to be available for that. Remember, says Paul, your body doesn't belong to you alone. It belongs to your spouse. Likewise, a husband, you are to meet your wife's sexual needs. And don't think you can do with your body as you wish. So this would have been a major, a major, um, a major explosion in the Greco-Roman world. Because men could do what they liked. Husbands could do what they liked. They could have adultery, they could have mistresses, they could sleep around. And Paul says, no, your body does not belong to you alone. No, your wife owns your body. And therefore, you are to respect your body and you are to respect your wife. Just recently, the Gospel Coalition Africa has had a number of articles on sex, there was an excellent podcast by Black and Lily called Married Sex. There was an excellent article by Conrad on men and adultery, uh, where Conrad addresses uh, the fake news in Zambia, which says that faithful husbands are weak or bewitched. So Conrad, uh, who's a wonderful, wonderful Christian leader in, in Zambia, he addresses that. There's another two great articles by, by Rosie Moore. Let me quote from one of them, which I think is so helpful. Uh, 
It's, uh, the article is called, What is a Healthy Sex Life? And uh, let me quote from what Rosie said. I quote, The amazing thing is that the Creator God gave and designed sex to create community. Sex generates hormones that strengthen trust in the most intimate of human relationships. The study of human biology has shown that sex, sex is a powerful bonding agent. It is like a marital glue. In woman, touch, hugging, and kissing promotes the release of the hormone oxytocin. Some have called oxytocin the love hormone, for it stimulates connection and bonding. God has designed oxytocin to flood, flood a woman's system during orgasm. It's the same hormone released when a mother is breastfeeding to strengthen the maternal bond. Men are stereotyped as emotionally uninvolved, but biology tells a different story. The predominantly male hormone, vasopressin, released during sex, connects a man to his mate and even his children. It makes him more committed to his role as a husband. Thus, vasopressin drives him to provide, lead, and nurture his family. It's clear that loving, self-giving sex doesn't just bring momentary pleasure. It is also good for our marriage, bonding a husband and wife together like glue. It makes us more loyal, more committed, and more forgiving. And after many years of marriage, these attitudes really matter. What we must remember is Genesis 3, when we come to sex. So the fall affected both marriage and sex. So after the fall, all of us, in one way or the other, to a greater or, less, greater or lesser extent, have become sexually flawed. So all of us, in one way or the other, because of the fall, we have this beautiful picture, we have this beautiful design that God has given us, but because of the fall, there is brought distortion in the sexual area of life. And that is why there are distortions. So for some people, sex becomes an idol, it becomes a god, it becomes an obsession, it becomes an addiction. For other people, there's sex with the same gender. For others, sex is used for purely selfish, self-centered reasons, sex for sale. And of, and of course, sex after the fall has brought great, great damage in areas like rape and gender-based violence and abuse and incest. That is why we need Christ, not just to redeem us spiritually, but to redeem us sexually. The key is Christ. Now, before we get to the roles, and I see our time is going, let me just pick up five misunderstandings about sex. This is especially for those of you who are not married, but I think it's actually for all of us. Number one, misunderstanding number one, sex will satisfy all the longings of your heart. If I only had sex, if I, if I, if I only had more sex, I'd be satisfied. My dear friend, that is a devil's lie. It's the lie that sex will fill the hole in your heart. Sex can be a wonderful experience for a couple, but it can never fill the hole in your heart. Thankfully, you don't have to be married to fill the hole in your heart because there's only one who can fill the hole in your heart, and that is Jesus. Misunderstanding number two. Sex in marriage is like sex in the movies. 
Haven't you noticed that in the movies, it's mainly about sex and hardly about children? In real life, it's mainly about children and hardly about sex. In the movies, the couple is always in the zone. They're never tired. They have boundless energy. They have bodies that are sculpted, and there's romantic music in the background. The reality is we are all sinful, selfish, self-centered people. Good sex needs work. It needs sacrifice. It needs denial. Good sex has more to do with giving than taking. Number three, Outer beauty is what makes sex really good. That is a big lie. Most sex counselors will tell you that sex in marriage gets better as a couple gets older, which is good for me, and you guys have to wait. (laughs) Good sex is not so much about the outer body. We know that. It's your mind. It's your emotions. The biggest sexual organ is your brain. It's not the outer body. Misunderstanding number four, what, what you fill your head with at the moment won't affect your marriage. That is a misunderstanding. So if you fill your head with porn, if you fill your head with romantic movies plus romantic books, you will have a totally unrealistic view of marriage and sex. And that can cause damage, great damage, to your marriage. Misunderstanding number five. This is really for the unmarried. Sexual, sinful sexual desires will disappear once you are married. That is a misunderstanding. It's true that marriage is the proper vehicle for sexual expression. But if you're struggling with sinful sexual desires now, it may well be a long-term fight. Welcome to the club. The Christian life is a fight. It's a great fight. It's a victorious fight but it's a fight nonetheless. Now let me quickly have a look at this big topic, and I won't be able to give you the full treatment of roles in marriage. I'm quite aware that it's not PC to talk about roles in marriage, and yet the Bible is very clear on roles in marriage for husband and wife. And the world's alternative doesn't seem to be working all that well, does it? Because it's really just a continuation of the battle of the sexes. Let's look at two areas. Number one, equality. Back to Genesis chapter 1. So important that we get this right. Genesis chapter 1. Here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, 27, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that both men and women are equally made in the image of God. Let me read verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here the Bible states, actually twice, in, twice here on the first page of the Bible, the absolute complete equality of men and women. Both are made in the image of God. It's extraordinary. On the first page of the Bible, written over 3,500 years ago, before the feminist movement, before Bill of Rights or Constitutions, God states categorically twice the equality of both men and women equally made in the image of God. It's striking, striking, the opening page of the Bible affirms the equality of woman. The closing page in the Bible affirms the church in female form as the bride of Christ. The characteristics that make you female come from God. The characteristics that make me male come from God. 
So here in Africa, where we have a significant problem with patriarchy, with chauvinism, it is so important that we go back to first principles. Men and women are equally human, equally precious, equally capable. Notice chapter 1, verse 28. Both men and women are responsible to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. We are equally responsible. We have equal worth, equal value, equal dignity. Here at Christchurch Midrand, we've just opened the Care and Crisis Center, which specially focuses on gender-based violence and unplanned pregnancies. And we continually go back to first principles. Here is the first principle. Both men and women equally made in God's image. Second point, roles. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 18. Now, Genesis 1 to 3 are quite clear about the headship of Adam. That is not PC, but it's very clear. The headship of Adam in marriage. Adam is created first. Adam names Eve. Verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Two key words there. Helper, it's not a demeaning or degrading word. It's used elsewhere in the Old Testament of God. God is Israel's helper, the helper of his people. It basically means to help. It's the sense of aiding, where the man is incapable of supplying for himself. The second word there is the word fit for him. It means corresponding to him, opposite to him. Strictly speaking, it means according to the opposite of him. She compliments him where he is lacking. So when God says, chapter 2, verse 8, it is not good that man should be alone, he doesn't make another animal, he doesn't make another man, no, he makes a woman, equal but different. She compliments him where he is lacking. He leads and she supports him. Now we get to Genesis 3, the fall again. There's God's pattern, God's design. The fall brings about a role reversal. So you remember in Genesis 3, the woman takes the lead. The man neglects his responsibility, and the animal has dominion over the humans. It's a total role reversal. And then you'll notice chapter 3, verse 9. Notice what happens here. It's it's quite critical, verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The man responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God then says, he's speaking to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So it's striking here that God holds Adam responsible for Eve's transgression. And then verse 12, Adam blames blames Eve, and the rest is history. And the upshot of that, when man rejects God's design, is chapter 3, verse 16, the battle of the sexes. Your desire, your desire to control him and to rule him and to undermine him, your desire shall be for your husband. That's what it means. You now want to control him. And the husband, instead of leading his wife, serving his wife, loving his wife, he wants to rule over her to get his way. That's the consequence of sin. Now let's have a look lastly at Ephesians 5. 
the passage that Gugu read to us earlier. Here we see that the answer is Christ. So notice again verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the picture that Paul gives us here is a marriage. I know that, you say. But no, no, no. Notice the great marriage, the greatest marriage. Jesus and his bride. Jesus, in a sense, is married. He's the ultimate husband. The church, which is believers through the ages from every tribe, language, country, uh, tongue, is the ultimate bride. So this marriage between Christ and his bride is the model for all marriages. So husbands, verse 25, you are to lead and love your wives as Christ led his bride, the church. How did he lead the church? He died for the church. He gave himself up for the church. He gave up all his rights, his privileges, in order to love the church. That's the model, gentlemen, of leadership. The badge of leadership is not a throne or a whip. The badge of leadership is a towel and a bucket of water as Jesus washes the feet of his bride, his disciples. Wives, verse 23, you are to submit and follow your husband as the church submits to Christ. It's very interesting that the overriding command in the New Testament to husband and wives, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Peter, is this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Why? Because that's exactly what didn't happen in Genesis 3. Adam failed to lead in love. Adam failed to take responsibility. Eve failed to submit to Adam. What that means is that all us men share in Adam's sinful DNA by trying to dodge their responsibility to lead their families. And women, wives, they share in Eve's DNA by trying to control or rule over their husbands. Both the husband who doesn't lead in love and the wife who doesn't submit in love are reverting to their sinful rejection of God and his design for marriage. So when Paul calls husbands and wives here in Ephesians 5, what he's basically saying is remember the gospel. Gentlemen, remember Christ. Remember what he did for us. Remember how he loved the church and died for the church. Husbands, that's your model. Wives, remember the bride, the church, for whom Christ died, and how the church submits to Christ. So Jesus and his precious bride is the ultimate model for all marriages. Practically, what does that look like? Wives, I think it means that you need to encourage your husband to lead. Now, perhaps you've been doing just the opposite. No, the Bible says you need to encourage him to lead. You need to be willing to follow. You need to be willing to make sacrifices for him. You are to respect him. You are to make him feel special. 
You are to be dependent on him, not your mother, not your father, not your sister, but your husband. Husbands, lead your wives. Take up the towel and the bucket of cold water. Be willing to sacrifice for her. Be willing to serve her. Be willing to deny yourself for her. Protect her from others where necessary. Bring out the best in her. Make her shine. All her gifts, all her talents. Now, you've heard me say this before. What does it mean practically to us men who are husbands, who are to lead our wives? If there's not enough food in the house, the husband, father ought to be the last to eat, not the first. That's servant leadership. If you have a fight, husbands ought to apologize first. Yo, 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 that is hard. That is hard. But that's what it means. That's what leadership means. You apologize first. If you can't agree on which Netflix to watch, you as the husband must make a decision. You must lead. And so you say, honey, let's watch what you want to watch. If you have a problem with the neighbors, you as the husband, you need to take responsibility. There's problems at school with the kids. You need to take responsibility. That's what it means. People who say that Paul is chauvinistic have never read Paul. Let me close. Three comments, three points. As I said before, number one, in my opinion, the greatest problem in our country is not politics, it's not economics, it's not crime, it's not corruption. It's absentee fathers and husbands. It's dysfunctional fathers and husbands. It's abusive fathers and husbands. It's non-fathers. It's non-husbands. Too many just don't pitch up. It's men like Adam who won't take responsibility for their wives and families. So we need to be different. We need to model what is different. We need God's grace. We need God's spirit. Without that, we are lost. And we need to pray that God will raise up godly men to lead their families. Number two, husbands and wives, do your verse. So don't worry about the other person's verse. Do your verse. This is pretty basic, guys. Husbands, love your wives. It's not your job to force her to submit to you. Stop trying to dominate or control her. No, do your verse. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, do your verse. Submit to your husbands. It's not your job to force him to provide leadership. Stop trying to control him. Stop nagging him. Do your verse. And notice, both commands are unconditional. Even if she does not submit, you are still to love her as Christ loved the church. Even if he does not love you as he ought, you ought still to submit to him. Remember, one person can save a marriage. Do your verse. Don't worry about your spouse's verse. That is their, their responsibility before God. Number three, if you're not yet married, if you're single... Listen carefully, young man. If you are not willing to sacrifice for your sweetheart, if you are not willing to literally die for her, don't marry her. Young lady, if you're not willing to submit to your sweetheart, willing to accept his leadership, don't marry him. 
Despite my advanced age, I do understand falling in love. I do understand passion. I do understand hotness. But if you're not willing to die for her, don't marry her. If you're not willing to submit to him, don't marry him. You both need a huge respect for one another. Well, our time is gone. There we have some principles God has given us. Let me pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. You tell God where you are. Father, we do want to pray for your help and ask for your help because we all such broken sinners and we all need your grace, we all need your forgiveness, we all need your spirit so much and especially those of us who are married. Lord, will you help us to repent where we have failed in our responsibility as a husband and wife? Lord, will you convict us And will you help us by your spirit to repent and then to ask for your spirit to help us to do our verse. Father, we pray for marriages in our church family. Lord, we know the devil will attack marriages and families. And so we pray, Lord, that you will will prevent the devil from getting a foothold. We ask your protection upon us. And we pray, Lord, that you will help each of us to go back to first principles and to practice them. And Lord, will you help us as a church to model the gospel, that our church, that our marriages, that our families, that our relationships may model the gospel to others. So Lord, place your hand upon us, bless us, use us. And as we go into this week, help us to serve you in all that we do. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, it's been so good to have you here this morning. Sorry we've gone over time. Do remember that uh, we need to keep social distancing. Uh, Do remember uh, that if you need some prayer, if you can remain in your seat and one of our staff or one of our counselors will come to pray with you next week. We're coming back to the book of Mark, the Gospel of John Mark, and we're looking at chapter 1, and uh, I hope you can join us next week. There will be communion, so if you are coming to the auditorium, I think it'll be helpful if you can just bring some little container with with some grape juice or or water and uh, perhaps a piece of bread or a biscuit so that uh, you can partake in the Lord's table next week. God bless you. Have a good week.